Welcome back. Yeah, we're. How long have we been away? It's been like I feel like it's been like a month. Yeah, we were like we'll be back in a few weeks, and then it was like psych. (laughs) I was was a little busier than I expected to be Mm -hmm. with these classes, but things are all kind of like falling into place. So yeah, we're back. Who are you? What's your name? Oh right, right, right. Uh, (laughs) I'm Amelia Umpuero, uh, and I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast, which is the weirdest thing. Yeah, and I'm Scotty Milder. I'm the other co-host. And uh, if you have not listened to us before, this is our podcast just about weird shit. Yep, Um, weird shit we find on the internet, and I mean in other places as well. Right, mostly on the internet. It's a lot of internet stuff, guys. (laughs) All right. Well, I think you're going first. Oh right, right, right. Okay. All right. Cool. So, okay. Let me let me get on my, sorry. I was not, I was like prepared, but not prepared. Let me just <laughs> yes. finagle something. By and we forgot how to do this. <laughs> We've forgotten how to podcast. <laughs> okay, cool. So a little bit of a cold open again, somewhat, but it'll be clear here. And it's not really a cold open. I'm just going to like ease into the topic. Cool. Uh, but sources for this are Wikipedia, Texas Monthly, LA Times, Daily Cella, The New York Times, and Automobile Magazine. So on March 23rd, 2021, Texas Monthly Magazine published an article titled, They Just Moved Into an Austin Name neighborhood. Now they want to end one of its traditions. Mm. The article was written by a guy named Peter Hawley, who apparently has like no tears to shed for like the plight of white (laughs) gentrifiers. Mm, (laughs) The plight. Yeah. The plight of white gentrifiers. And he reports on the complaints of residents of a new luxury apartment building who are, there's just not really a better word for it. They're pretty, they're scandalized that the community that they're coming into has a tradition of car clubs, low riders, and a culture Mm. that like doesn't really have anything to do with them. So the neighborhood that we're talking about is called East Cesar Chavez in Austin, Texas. And it is a neighborhood that has a decades long history of car clubs coming to Chicano Park. That's a nickname. The park's Mm -hmm. real name is Fiesta Gardens Park to show off their custom low riders, play music, grill, hang out, and just like generally exist while being brown and black. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, a car club is generally understood to be a group of friends who love working on cars, who hang out and ride around together. The cars can be like refurbished muscle cars, new and Mm -hmm. old luxury cars, or low riders, which are customized cars with a lowered body. The luxury apartment building in question is the Weaver. So, okay. So the Weaver is like one of many signs of gentrification that are going on in this neighborhood and actually all around Austin. East Cesar Chavez has been historically a neighborhood that is populated by working class Latinx families. This has been true for decades. In the 1960s, yeah, in the 1960s, East Cesar Chavez was essentially cut off from Austin's downtown area by the building of I-35. Right. Which that's also a pretty classic tactic for like cutting Mm -hmm. off like less desirable, (laughs) like ethnic neighborhoods. Right. Well, that's where you get the, like the term, like, you know, the wrong side of the tracks. Right. Know? Precisely. Yeah. yeah. They just like put, you know, a concrete barrier, a train track or whatever to be like, a you guys stay over there. This will be the nice part of town. Right. 
until we decide we want it. And then until we decide to complain about your bullshit. But anyway. Right. And then they're going to gentrify it. So let's get into what the hell gentrification is. Yeah. Gentrification is the process of changing the character of a neighborhood through the influx of more affluent, in quotes, residents and businesses. It is mm-hmm. a common and controversial topic in both politics and city planning. Gentrification often increases the economic value of a neighborhood, but often shifts a neighborhood's racial ethnic compositions, thereby forcing out a neighborhood's original communities and displacing them to other cheaper locales. And that creates a like whitewashing of these neighborhoods of color and setting up the opportunity for these again, air quotes, affluent residents and businesses to culturally appropriate things like restaurants, foods, Mm -hmm. art, and all that stuff without any of the money going back to the original creators from those now displaced communities. Right. Okay. So back to East Cesar Chavez in Austin. In 2009, the average price of a home in that neighborhood was just over a hundred thousand dollars by last summer that price uh the median sale price for a home in that neighborhood had ballooned up to nearly eight hundred thousand dollars wow yeah the neighborhood was you know consisted mostly of modest single family homes those have been torn down and replaced by mcmansions that have fucking that are surrounded by security fences oh god yeah like don't move into a neighborhood and then be like i'm going to tear down the buildings that have been here i'm going to put up this tacky ass austin i know you i see you i live in you i know your fucking ugly mcmansions i know nothing's nice over there and then put up a security fence you yeah. dick like that's the it's gross it's yeah. gross is what it is in 2015 a beloved community store called Jumpoline, which was a pinata store, and ever like it was, mm-hmm. it was a it was a neighborhood staple, right? Was like bulldozed with no warning. Oh shit! You want to guess what went up in its place? Like uh, Whole Foods, a cafe that catered to cat owners. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, because that's what Austin, Texas needs. Okay. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, okay. I do love Austin. I had a wonderful time living there. It was, you know, a a great point of my life, but Austin's whole, like, keep Austin weird. I'm like weird. And like the cafe that caters to cat owners weird. Yeah. I mean, okay, I guess. Well, like when me and another friend, cause I was actually thinking of moving to Austin for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was looking into jobs up there and me and another mutual friend of ours went out there to kind of check it out. Mm -hmm. And, and like you said, I really liked the city. It did remind me of a place like a Portland or something like that, you know, and everyone was, you know, passing out the keep Austin weird stickers and was like, oh, isn't Austin so weird? And mm-hmm. it's like, guys, we're from Albuquerque. Like our yeah. our gauge for weird is not gonna be the same as yours. Like yeah, for us, man. it'll be like if there's not like a dead body in the middle of a road somewhere. Yeah, like, or aliens or like lines of mystical energy converging right. over your over your town. Like, ooh, like, you're wearing tie-dye. Yeah, you're so yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That cafe has since closed down. Of course it did because bum, like, bum, it's a cafe for for cat people. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they're not things that like what do you bring your cat to the cafe? Like I don't even understand how this I, that's a health code violation. It has yeah. to be. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> At any rate. So non-Latinx white folks have been slowly trickling into this neighborhood. And when they first started showing up, they were like artsy folks who mm-hmm. wanted to live in like a warm, you know, community. So they moved to like the brown side yeah. of town. That's always um, the vanguard of right. this stuff, right? Right, right, right. But these days they are more concerned 
concerned with, you know, posting about unfamiliar vehicles and loud noises on their fucking next door app. Um, It should also be said that a big reason for the gentrification of these neighborhoods in Austin has to do with a couple of things. One, Austin is one of the largest growing cities in the country right now. Mm -hmm. And two, there's a lot of big tech moving into Austin. Companies like Apple, Oracle, Samsung, et cetera, are, and, and like a lot more. The stuff that I was reading is like, there's a big influx of big tech moving into, into the area. Yeah. As a sidebar, Austin's black residents are already leaving the city. In two in the year 2000, Austin's black population made up about 10% of the entire city's population. Mm-hmm. That number dropped to 7.5% by 2017. Mm. A lot of the black residents of the city are heading to the suburbs like Pflugerville, mm. which is about 15 miles out of, yeah, of okay. the capital. I think I drove through there, but yeah. Yeah. P-F-L-U-G-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. Pflugerville. Right. <laughs> okay. So these car clubs that bring their lowriders and their grills and music and communities to local public parks, they are local public parks. Right. This has been a tradition in Austin and plenty of other cities for decades. People who are now serving on Austin City Council grew up going to these things when they were little. It's They're just, they're big community events. You yeah. know what I mean? But the residents of the Weaver are just, they're just, they're, they're, they're clutching their pearls. They're clutching their pearls. <laughs> they're clenching their butt cheeks. Like everything is every, they're just terrified. Yeah. Um, they frequently call the police on the gatherings, which are largely made up of people of color and is a practice that could, you know, as we know, prove lethal mm-hmm. for, for people of color. Roderick Davis, who works for the city of Austin aviation department and is the founder and president of hands full of cash car club says, quote, you think you're just calling and they're just going to kick us out, but it could always lead to something more. It's It sucks because we've been doing this for so long. Right. Also, these car clubs are not like tearing up and down the streets every day for all hours. We're talking like a couple of hours on the weekends. Right. And that's it. Well, it's like we, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but like we have a ton of car club stuff going on in this state. And yeah, I've been to a couple of those things. Yeah. It's just people showing off their cars, usually parked. They're just showing off their cars. Sometimes playing music, sometimes like grilling some shit on some Mm -hmm. grill. Yeah. They had all, all, yeah, they'd all shown up, which, yeah. I think we can talk about this. Um, they'd all, sh- they'd all, they were all there when we were doing the Black Lives Matter protest last mm. summer, and they were all parked along Central. And remember, there was the guy who had oh, the, his right. motorcycle yeah, yeah, yeah. that was shooting flames and stuff, yeah. and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, that guy was badass." Yeah, yeah. and the cars are beautiful and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. Okay, right. so uh, I'm gonna read you some of the most like eye rolly. You got to be fucking kidding me. Quotes from the article. Okay. Uh, okay so this says, Hit me with it. <laughs> quote, one particularly vocal tenant, a non-Hispanic white woman with short blonde hair who appeared to be in her fifties and refused to give her name. Claimed <laughs> we that- all know what her name is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, claimed that smoke from the tires was killing nearby trees <sighs> and that traffic from the gathering would make it impossible for an ambulance to reach her in the event of a medical emergency, though two other roads to the apartment building remain accessible at all times i just um, i mean you can just (laughs) picture it right like you can just 100 she's like kind of orangey tinged she's got blonde she's got a short blonde hairdo i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna be mean okay can moving on okay here's another one quote at a recent gathering a non-hispanic white tenant flagged two police vehicles and pleaded with officers to disband the celebration calling it 
quote, scary. The yeah. officers eventually drove off without taking any action. Yeah. Well, because I, I mean, you would hope that the cops in this area, like they know if this has been something that's been going on for a long time, they kind of yeah. know what's up. I mean, you hope. I mean, Texas also has a problematic relationship between its police and its Latinx communities. I'm sure. You know, but there we go. But yeah, hopefully they're like, these people have been doing this forever. Like this is as bad as like, this this is is as bad as it gets. Yeah. Uh, Here's another one quote. The blonde woman who worried about emergency responders being able to reach her decided she'd had enough. She bounded down the stairs and into the street in high heels, holding her iPhone to film the offending vehicles and threatening to call the police on another group of men standing beside an old school Ford sedan who looked unamused. Mm. You can't tell me drugs aren't being distributed over there. She (sighs) has the brazenness of it all just kills me. Okay. I have to step in here and say that it says this in the article and like it should come as no surprise that the residents of the Weaver have never crossed the street and been like, hi, I'm fucking Karen and I live in the Weaver. What are you guys doing? What is this? Super cool. Do you make these cars? No, it's just like scary. Yeah, they immediately like they formed an opinion. They move in. Mm -hmm. They're like, what's happening? And then right. And then they don't engage with these, this community in any other way, but to call the police. Right. I also have to wonder how like scared the residents of the Weaver would be if it was a bunch of white dudes in their fucking diesel dually pickup trucks. Mm -hmm. Well, what if it was just like an arts and crafts fair? You know, because that's essentially like the equivalent of what yes. car club gatherings are, you know. Yeah. This is the last quote. Quote, another Weaver resident voiced more generalized criticism, calling the event a display of toxic masculinity. End oh, quote. Okay. Like, I think it's really easy to like read this article and to be like, oh, my God, like this is obviously like an apartment building full of Karens and like, oh, my <laughs> right. God, and and blah, blah, blah. But that particular quote offends me in like a very personal way. Right. Um, it is, I grew up, my parents were were Bolivian. We did things differently. We, you know, my parents had accents. We ate different foods. And I grew up, I, I had a lot of people who made fun of me for the stuff that was like traditions, you know, right. and things that were being passed down and just like my way of life. And I didn't know any better and I didn't know how to fix it. Right. One. And two, I don't think it like settled in too well, but I remember like distinctly feeling like you're trying to make me ashamed of like where I come from and who right. I am. And that's just a really like, it, it just is, it's something that is very, I guess, like activating for me. It really melts my butter. Yeah, It just don't, don't do that. Don't make fun of people's foods. Don't like, if you don't understand a culture, go learn about it. Here's what offends me about that quote mm-hmm. is that it's like, this person who I'm assuming is probably a white woman, mm-hmm. um, she knows that the first thing people are going to accuse her of is being racist. So she's mm-hmm. trying to like turn it around. She's trying mm-hmm. to like outwoke people by like, no, it's toxic masculinity. Yeah. You know, she's trying to both put herself on the right side so people don't get mad at her while still being like a racist asshole. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think like it's that hiding behind wokeness. 
Yes. That pisses me off. Yeah. And I just like, yeah, that's an interesting like choice of things to be like, oh, this is a display of toxic masculinity. Right. Again, you're you're playing immediately into preconceived notions Mm -hmm. about Latinx culture in a way to like deflect from whatever preconceived notions people may have about you being a fucking racist. Right. Well, and again, are you saying the same thing when people are driving through in their massive pickup trucks or their Hummers, which you probably own. There's that. This person's like observation based on nothing more than their own sort of like ignorant opinion disregards what is really a cultural artistic practice that goes back decades and is a source of, is a major source of pride in Latinx and black communities. So to school this ignorant witch, we're going to talk about the history of the lowrider. Cool. There's a lot of opinions about where exactly the practice of altering cars to lower them started. There are some folks that say it, ha- it started in El Paso, others say San Diego, Tijuana, or Juarez, but most reports seem to point to LA's east side as the birthplace of the lowrider movement. Um, I think it was, that's what I've always heard, but... Mm-hmm. It started out being exclusive to the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. Um, a quick sidebar here. Earlier, when I, if you, when you heard me use the word Hispanic earlier, that is a direct quote from the article. There are a lot of terms that can be used to describe. So there are a lot of labels. There are a lot of identities that go with the Latinx community. People from the Latinx community are starting to move away from the term Hispanic because it is so closely tied to colonizers. And so there are people who are, you know, taking up Latinx with the X at the end to make it a more gender inclusive mm-hmm. um, or gender neutral rather term. But there are also people who consider Latinx colonizer language. And so I know a lot of people who are activists in the Latino community who are moving more towards using indigenous language. Mm -hmm. There are also things like Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, Mexican, Mexican Americans. Those last terms are going to be used somewhat interchangeably throughout this. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, as is a matter of all identities, like, you know, somebody will let you know how they identify. And if they don't, you can ask them. Can you ask them? I forget how that goes. But anyways, don't assume. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the problem with, I mean, just there's one big practical problem with Hispanic that I don't think I ever thought about until it was pointed out to me is that a big chunk of the, what was used to be called the quote Hispanic world is actually taken up by Brazilians who are not colonized by the Spanish. (laughs) Right. Colonized by the Portuguese. Right. And if you want to get into the bit of the etymology of the word Hispanic is anybody who is the people from Spain mm-hmm. and anybody who is like descendant from people of Spain's, but right. that inherently means, right. That inherently means colonizers and, and imperialists. Right. Uh, the Canary Islands are, I think if I'm correct, technically Hispanic, um, I mean, the Philippines. but there are parts of the Caribbean, the Philippines. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing. So for most of my life, it has been Hispanic to talk about people who are Spain or the descendants of Spaniards. Then again, at the time that I was growing up, Latino or Latina to describe anybody, to talk about anybody who comes from Latin America, nice. which is uh, Central and South America and parts of the Caribbean. Okay. okay. So <laughs> there's a little <laughs> sidebar about identity labels. It, it okay so the the practice of of low writing was exclusive to latinx communities and then it got adopted by black car enthusiasts and then has spread beyond that mm-hmm. it is Hard to talk about what brought on the lowrider movement without also talking about the history of Mexican Americans in this country. Mm-hmm. This is a 
massive fucking topic. If you are interested in learning more about this, please go look up the Chicano movement. Please go look up Pachucos. Please go look up the Wikipedia article on the history of Mexican Americans is long and in-depth and maddening and enlightening and wonderful. So go and check that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we talk about Mexican Americans, we really do have to talk about the fact that they did not cross the border, the border crossed them. Mm -hmm. These were people who were living in what was at that time, Northern Mexico, but those territories got annexed in 1880, I'm sorry, 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Higaldo. And Mm -hmm. that uh, when that happened, nearly 800,000 Mexican citizens that were living in what would become California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico became U.S. citizens. The Mm -hmm. Treaty of Guadalupe Higaldo stated that the Mexicans who were living in those territories could either leave their homes and go deeper into Mexico, or they could become U.S. citizens. A big chunk of them. I was just going to, this is fine. Following the Mexican-American War, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a big chunk of them were like, no, we'll stay here. Like, this yeah. is our land. This is our place. This is our homes. We're staying here. And they were deemed U.S. citizens. Right. Texas had already been annexed in 1845, just because I was like, what happened to Texas? <laughs> well, t- the whole history already- <laughs> of Texas is like its own thing. Like, that. that's the history yeah. of Texas is super fascinating. Oh, yeah. And super bloody. Um, yeah. And there's a sport team called the Rangers, right? Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I consider changing that name. Like, well, I don't know I mean, what I don't know what the Rangers were, except for like I mean, vigilante. They still have like, Texas Rangers. It's like yeah. the version of like the FBI, basically. Yeah, and they like mm, the history of the Texas Rangers is uh, is a not long great. and bloody one. Yeah, yeah it's not great. I, yeah, I'm just not really sure what they did other than kill Mexican people. To be completely honest. I mean, for a big, long time, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. BT Dubs, the Treaty of Guadalupe Higaldo, deemed that the Mexican-American population that was going to stay in the United States territories was white. Mm -hmm. Okay. They were white. That's how they got classified. We are not going to get into all of it, but what I'm about to tell you, what's coming up next is basically a Cliff's Notes version of what Mexican-Americans, including those that had been deemed citizens during these treaties, those who'd been given birthright citizenship, or those who came to this country through work programs like the the Bracero program, Mm -hmm. have faced in this country. And this is a trigger warning. There is going to be talk of racial violence. I'm also going to use a racial slur in this. So just, you know, know that and take care of yourselves. All right. Here we go. Mexican-Americans have faced the stripping of their racial ethnic identity, the ethnic cleansing of the Mexican repatriation during the Great Depression, which was spurred on by President Hoover's call for deportation, a -hmm. series on the racial inferiority of Mexicans run by the Saturday Evening Post, and U.S. farmers saying that Mexicans who were American citizens, were taking jobs and competing for public assistance. Mm -hmm. Forced assimilation that promoted the, quote, Mexican-American identity as a white ethnic group that had little in common with African-Americans. The stealing of guaranteed rights to all holders of Mexican land grants, which had been clearly stated in Article 10 of the Guadalupe Higaldo Treaty. The article was removed quietly from the final version by our own Congress. Mm -hmm. So when you hear, if you're from New Mexico and you hear people be like, oh yeah, my family dates back to the land grants. That's -hmm. what they're talking about. Go look that up. That is, I mean, that's my, my grandmother's family, but yeah. Yeah. Stolen land, stolen, 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 like just 
tons of stolen land from the indigenous people, from the Mexican people who were here before, before anybody else, all sorts of stuff. Lynchings at an unprecedented rate by Anglo settlers. Between 1848 and 1879, Mexican Americans were lynched at a rate of 473 per 100,000 population. I should also state here that these were not frontier justice lynchings. They were just lynchings. Mm -hmm. It was just white settlers being like, we don't like the fact that you're here and doing that. Yeah, it's terrorizing them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the banning of interracial marriages, which this is also the weird thing is that there's this thing where it's like, you're like, we're saying that you're white. Mm-hmm. And also it, it, it feels when you dig into it, like they created this loophole so they could be like, there is no racism here because those people are white, mm-hmm. but yeah, they mean, can't marry anybody else but Mexicans. They can't like. There, there's a lot of a crossover between that experience and the Jewish experience. Mm-hmm. And Which I think a lot I'm, of experiences. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do an episode at some point talking about the Jewish relationship with whiteness. Yeah. Just haven't done it yet. But yeah. So the banning of interracial marriages, the creation of segregated neighborhoods, voter suppression, destruction of communities like the Chavez Ravine to build Dodger Stadium in LA. If you do mm-hmm. not know the history of how Dodger Stadium got built in LA, go and check it out. They pulled people from their homes. False rumors of hordes of Mexicans pouring over the border. That has been a lie that has been has been being told in this country since the beginning. And it, there has been a constant now. <laughs> flood. Yes, right. there is just, I'm surprised there are any people left in Mexico yeah. uh, since they're all constantly flooding over the border. This is a doozy. Laws stating that it was a crime for Mexican citizens to work in the U.S., but not illegal for U.S. employers to employ Mexican citizens. Mm-hmm. Targeted denial of welfare programs, forced sterilization. Mm due to eugenic laws, BT dubs, California's eugenic laws, which were largely responsible for this compulsory sterilization, were the uh, basis and inspiration for Nazi eugenics. I think I knew that. Yep. Nativist immigration policies targeted extensive campaigns of violence by the KKK in the Southwest. There's another little warning for a racial slur. In 1951, the Truman Administration's Commission on Migratory Labor released a xenophobic report blaming the Southwest's social ills on undocumented immigration, which led to INS Commissioner Joseph Swing announcing, I kid you fucking not, Operation Wetback. Yep. On June I've heard, 9th, I've heard of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On June 9th, 1954, it was a campaign to deport all undocumented people from the U.S. Let me be very clear here that while it says all undocumented people, they meant all undocumented Mexicans. Mm-hmm. They weren't looking for the Irish in Boston or anything. Right. Inhumane working conditions for laborers, which led to massive nationwide protests and strikes by activist leaders like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. Police brutality, including but in no way limited to the death of Alex Nieto in San Francisco, who was shot no less than 48 times by cops for eating a burrito in a park before work. Mm. So that is what the Mexican slash Mexican-American slash Chicanx communities were, are, have been dealing with since the fucking Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So yeah. little rundown, but let's get the fuck out of this awfulness and let's talk lowriders. Yeah. <laughs> Woo, okay. Uh, that's going to be as bad as it gets, folks. From here on out, well, it's just going to be some I'm pretty I'm glad cool you stuff. went into it, though, because like it's. I think it's important when we're talking about these Karens fucking calling the cops on people and right. whatever to like understand the history and the context of what that is. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So 
I'm going to transport you to LA in the mid to late 1940s and carrying throughout post-war prosperity of the 1950s. Mexican-Americans who are also calling themselves Chicanos, they're calling themselves Chicanos and other people are calling them Chicanos. There's a lot of information about that particular identity label. Mm -hmm. I've seen stuff that it was originally like a a classist and racist slur that has been reclaimed by the community. It is now sort of generally deemed to be a word that signifies, what's the word I'm looking for? Acknowledgement of indigenous heritage and a sort of Mm -hmm. shunning of colonizer. Yeah, well, I know I know that there was a period where it was considered derogatory, just because my grandmother really hated that word. Uh huh. She always said she was Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. She wouldn't um, even use Hispanic. She said she was Spanish. But. Yeah, which I mean, like probably, but also I mean, <laughs> also some other uh, stuff. As, as we found out, there were other th- other things in there she wasn't talking about. But yeah, go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> okay, so you know the Chicanos are again L.A. late mid to late 1940s. Um, and into the 1950s. And the Chicano community, they're coming back from fighting in World War One and World War II. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they've put their lives on the line. Many of them have fought bravely for this country and they come back to being treated like trash. So Chicano youth started altering their cars at first by putting bricks or sandbags in the trunk. And this is stuff where it's like you hear of Mexican youths in like Tijuana and Juarez doing the same kind of thing to to make the cars ride lower. But then they move on to lowering blocks, cutting spring coils, zing the frames and dropping Mm -hmm. spindles. Again, all of this drops, all of this is being done to drop the car to like gravel scraping levels. And what was the, like, what was the idea behind, like, where, why was the desire to drop the level of the car? What, I'm going to get to that. Cool. Here in just a sec. Okay. So they start dropping these cars and then they start parading them up and down the streets of East LA in a sort of motorized version of the Paseo, which is where young people, young people would like gather in the town squares Mm -hmm. and they would mingle and check each other out and blah, blah, blah. So to answer your question, why the desires to drop these cars down in 1949, the muscle car started to take hold in American pop culture Mm -hmm. and folks were crazy about these lightweight car bodies with powerful engines that could go fast. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happening in, in the mainstream. LA. So while that's happening, LA's Chicano community was building cars to go, as they call it, bajito y suavecito, or low and slow, mm-hmm. as an express refusal by young Chicanos to be anglicized. Ah. It was a direct cultural response to light and fast muscle cars that were taking over young American car culture. Yeah, because um, this is like the era of like, you know, rubble without a cause, jeans, yes. drag racing. Yes. Like all, so this is like 100%. a reaction against that. It is 100%. To, it is a it is a okay, response cool. and a reaction to like, journalists. That's, that's pretty fucking punk rock, I have to say. Right. Like, yeah. that's the thing is that, like, when you start to break these things down, it's not just that they were like, oh, we decided to do this. There's actually, mm-hmm. you know, okay, hold on. I'm going to say this. Journalist Ted West wrote, quote, there has never been a clear case of the automobile being used as an ethnic statement. Lowriders were political and social statements made by Mexican Americans in the face of acute 
racism. Mm. There are historians who look at the lowrider as sort of this like natural extension of the Pachuco counterculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I'm not going to get too into Pachucos, but they were a counterculture that was taking place within the Mexican American community around this time. They wore the zoot suits. They mm-hmm. listened to jazz and swing and, and all of that stuff. So Right. So lowriders are like the extension, like an extension of, of Pachuco culture and sort of yeah. like a, a, an automobile version of like a zoot suit. And it is also the predecessor to Cholo subculture. Ah, uh, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. They're all connected. Lowriders, by the way, were seen by the authorities as the car equivalent to the zoot suit. Loud, flashy, defiant, provocative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Punk rock. At first, punk rock. At first, the cars were just lowered to cruise low and slow, but they quickly became a means of expressing cultural pride. Mm-hmm. And they the cars became canvases for cultural art. So low riders, if you have never seen a low rider, I'm so sorry because they are fucking cool. Like they're <laughs> just big slabs of cars and they're, they're really lovely, but they sport murals of everything. And, and I mean, that can range to like religious iconography, like, you know, there's the big like Virgen murals on them, Aztec calendars, charitas, which is Mexican women in traditional costumes with like braids and the sombreros, Mexican flags. You can find almost anything on a low rider. One thing you generally will not find is flames because of their connection to, to hot rods. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, I, I did know that there was like a real, and it makes sense as you're getting into the history, that there's like a real rivalry between hot rod culture and lowrider culture. Yeah. And I mean, anywhere you look about lowriders, it's low and slow. Like, that is the catchphrase of the lowrider. Right. Low and flames slow. suggest speed. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Paint jobs are usually bright and the colors are a custom mix. So they go to these car shops. And they have these like artists work on their cars and they're never looking to repeat the same color. You don't want your low rider to be the same color as anybody else's low mm-hmm. rider. And they do that by using flakes, candy, or pearl colors. That's all the, like the type of, so pearlescent, sparkly. Right. I mean, again, I don't know if you've ever like pulled up next to like a glitter painted <laughs> low rider. When oh. I think of low riders, particularly the ones you see around Albuquerque, like that's what I think of. You know, is that yep. like super sparkly paint, very, very like loud, vibrant colors. Yeah. 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 They're just, they're beautiful. The interiors are completely redone to include like these massive sound systems, chandeliers. I kid you not. I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Stock car seats are replaced with like these plush swivel chairs and expansive bench seats that are just like swathed in velvet. Mm-hmm. The interiors of lowriders actually end up looking more like something you'd see in like a seventies lounge than a car. Yeah. Um, th- like there are ones that have like cocktail bars in them and stuff <laughs> like right. people, like these people go nuts. The artistry and the creativity is incredible. So these showy vehicles are a point of pride and the car clubs offered a sense of community for these people, kids grew yeah. up watching their fathers, their uncles and cousins build and cruise these low riders. And they dreamed of the day that they would like they themselves would own their own shorts lingo for cars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will also say that low riders started as sort of like a male dominated culture. Mm-hmm. but that's shifted. And now women who were once not allowed to join the car clubs, they were only allowed to like pose in front of the car. Right. They have now like moved into the mix. Um, if you can hear my puppy, my new puppy 
drinking water. I'm very sorry, but she's very thirsty. But these women, they have now learned all about cars from their dads, their uncles, mm-hmm. their cousins. And while think, they do, oh, go I was ahead. just going to say, I think a similar thing has happened with motorcycle clubs. Mm. Uh, I thought I thought about doing like a like a history of the outlaw biker club at some point. Mm-hmm. But what's kind of fascinating when you get into the history of motorcycle clubs is it almost developed from what you're saying in a very similar, like almost parallel track along mm-hmm. with this lowrider culture because it was all a bunch of returning vets post World War II that didn't feel like they. F- fit in mm-hmm. and we're creating these motorcycle clubs and it was the same thing it was very male dominated mm-hmm. you know they all had their old ladies but like the old ladies were not <laughs> supposed to be part of right they could ride on the back right but like they couldn't have their own and then that splintered into just what are called the two percenters which is the two percent of biker clubs that are like the outlaw biker clubs you know mm-hmm. the, the the sons of anarchy biker clubs most <laughs> motorcycle clubs it's like for veterans organizations or right for, you know Right. I think a similar thing has happened where they've started to like become more egalitarian and let more women actually join the clubs. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. And like women do still face some stigma within the community, including mm-hmm. like, you know, in a lot of the articles I read about female lowriders, it was the type of thing where they'd be like, yeah, guys will come up to me. Like guys will like, I'll, I'll take my car to a show and other like low riders will come and talk to my boyfriend about my car. And he's like, that's not my car. That's my baby's car. Mm-hmm. And you know, they'll be like, do you even know how to do this? Like, do you do your own work? And one of them was all, man, I can turn on this car with a screwdriver. So like, <laughs> like they know what they're doing. This is, yeah. you know, I mean, of course well, there's always going to be people who want to gatekeep, but like these women are building these cars. Right. It's, it's progress, but it's not like been completed. I mean, in a weird way, yeah. this reminds me of, this is a little sidebar, mm-hmm. but that woman who on TikTok, she's, musician she's mostly like an r&b musician mm-hmm. and like a pop musician but she posted a tiktok of herself playing or i think she was wearing a metallica shirt yep and all these fucking metal dudes mm-hmm. like came in i was like you probably don't even know the songs what is that your boyfriend shirt and so she's like mm, okay and so she posts another video of her like playing all these metallica songs but even like once she started playing the songs and they're like well you didn't play the solo you know and it's just like dude can you play this fucking song yeah you like, know it's what just that relax <laughs> Like getting past that gatekeeping is just a constant. Yeah, and honestly, like, like people are allowed to buy a t-shirt if they think it's a cool fucking t-shirt. Just right. chill out and just like download a meditation app or something. Like just <laughs> fucking relax for right. God's sakes. My God, just let people have joy and shit. Yeah. Um. So all of this stuff, you know, like everything I'm saying here, like, there's nothing nefarious going on here. It's right. people that like, they wanted to come together. They had these old, old, old cars. The first low riders, this was happening again, like in the late forties and fifties, they were finding junkyard cars from the 1930s mm-hmm. and, and refurbishing and them doing all this stuff with it. So it's all pretty innocent, but yeah. the movement wasn't, you know, wasn't without backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, people have tended to conflate low riders with gang members. And while there might be some overlap, uh, being a member of the low rider culture doesn't equal being part of a gang. Right. Well, it's like, it's like anyone back to the biker club thing. It's like anyone on a Harley with a big beard and a fucking leather cut, people are going to be like, Oh my God, it's a hell's angel or something. It's like, like I said, no, that's 2% of right. bikers are outlaw bikers. Like, right. Yeah. And yeah. And that's the thing, as a matter of fact, like these car clubs and these low rider competitions were actually like actually provided an outlet and escape from the lure of gang life. Again, when sense. you read articles, it is, I found a website from a law firm in LA that was like 
check out these lowrider shows. (laughs) You know, there are articles where they interviewed people who were pastors or, you know, surgeons or like teachers. Like it Mm -hmm. just, you just have to have a love of cars, you know? In 1958, California enacted section 24008 of the California Vehicle Code, which made it illegal to operate a car that was modified so that any part of it was lower than the bottom of the wheel rims. So this is specifically targeting, targeting low women. riders. Yeah. yeah. Again, not hot rods, not and muscle like, cars. And like, I'm riders. sure they tried to couch it in some sort of safety terms or something, but it's. Yeah. They were trying to be like, you can't like, you're going too slow up and down the street and like you're bothering people. So, yeah. you know, they were like, don't do that. But here's the thing, a culture that's going to learn to chop and drop their cars to make a political statement against Anglo culture is also going to be smart enough to figure out how to drop and lift those cars at will. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So. That law goes into place in 1958. In 1959, a car customizer, Ron Aguirre, scavenged some pesco pumps and valves from no lie a B-52 bomber, (laughs) a fucking plane, adapted them to the front suspension of his ex-Sonic bubble-topped custom Corvette, which let him adjust the height of the car with a dashboard switch and evade the ground clearance laws. So Mm. he could like lower the car and cruise. And then if he saw the cops, he could flip a switch and it would boink back up to a normal lawful Height. I, have a, I have a question about this, but I'll let you continue because you might answer it. So. Okay. So with this, Aguirre changed the face of lowrider culture. In mm-hmm. 1964, Gene Winfield created a car called the Reactor with high adjustable suspension. Both the X-Sonic and the Reactor look like goddamn spaceships. They look like something out <laughs> of the Jetsons. We'll post pictures. But I was like, okay, let's cool. And I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Because when I say that the X-Sonic is bubble top. I mean, it's bubble topped. Well, like it's like a fucking yeah. Coke mobile. I mean, it's it's that you talked. What was it? Because uh, you talked about it in your architecture episode. The uh, was it the pokey pokey? Uh, go- googie googie architecture, uh-huh. which was that like 1950s idea of futurism, <laughs> where like everything looks like the Jetsons. So like that sounds like yes. kind of that. Yes. Okay. So these adjustable suspensions are now like part and parcel of the lowrider look. And it's common to see lowriders like hopping on their suspensions or Mm -hmm. sitting with like one wheel completely off of the ground. That was my question because like I was wondering if there was a connection because this is a thing anyone our age, I mean, obviously in New Mexico, we we would see this like on the street, but like I just remember those 90s rap videos where Mm -hmm. the cars were always bouncing and doing that. And I was wondering if that came from this. Yep. Yeah. Like they were like, well, if we can make it like lower and raise, like what the fuck else can we do with it? And now you're starting to see, I mean, it's not just that they're bouncing. It's that they go like nose down, tail up. Mm-hmm, I've seen that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're basically doing like a headstand. They'll go the other way. They'll like rock side to side. Uh, a big thing about this though, is that frequently like that kind of stuff overworks all of the, like the hosing and stuff. So occasionally like hoses will rupture and like oil goes spraying. I mean, I was thinking like, that's a good way to create some fatigue cracks in your chassis there. But. Yeah. But fuck it. God, it looks so cool. The hydraulics on lowriders, as well as the engines have started to get more and more elaborate in recent years as like the art form evolves. So the movement is evolving from low and slow to low show and go. Yeah. So they are putting like more intense engines into these cars. Again, 
not necessarily to go fast, but just to like, you know, beef up the cars some more. Well, it makes them sound real mean. Yeah. Rumbly engine. Yeah. Another crazy thing about, and by crazy, I mean like awesome thing about lowrider culture is that there is not a portion of the car that is untouched by this artistry. Mm -hmm. So like you get these crazy paint jobs, the interiors are completely redone. The, when you lift up the hood, the in like every part of the car that can be seen is altered to be within, in the style of this culture. So, you know, you've got a mural on the hood. And then when you lift the hood up, there's like a chick in a bikini. Um, (laughs) The engines are all like chromed out. They're etched. They've got plaques with the names of the car clubs on there. Like Mm-hmm. All of this cool. It's it's amazing. So let's talk about a couple of famous lowriders. Cool. Probably the most famous is a lowrider called Gypsy Rose. And she was a 1964, she is a 1964 Chevy Impala painted bright pink and covered with 150 painted roses. Um, okay, she was I've originally owned by Jesse yeah. Valdez. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Side note. I've seen the name as Jesse Valdez. I've also seen the name as Jesse Valdez. Okay. For the purposes of this, we're going to go with Valdez because that's what I saw more often. Uh, yeah. If I'm getting that wrong, my apologies. And please feel free to correct me. The car was such a prime example of lowrider craftsmanship that it can be spotted in the opening credits of Chico and the Man. Okay. That's probably the picture mm-hmm. I've seen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, like it, there's a couple of shots of it and Jesse mm-hmm. Valdez is driving it in oh, the nice. credits, in the opening credits. Apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, the story goes that Freddie Prince was like, like, if we're doing a show about this community, we have to have Gypsy Rose in the opening credits. Yeah. And he was responsible for getting it in there. When Valdez passed away in 2011, his casket was even decorated to resemble his beloved Gypsy Rose. Oh. Yeah. The car now belongs to his son, Jesse Valdez II, and was chosen by the Historic Vehicle Association to be inducted into the National Historic Vehicle Register. Its specs Photos, detailed scans, and entire life story will now be archived for all time by the Library of Congress. Jesse Valdez II passed away in 2019 at the age of 45, and the Gypsy mm. Rose now permanently resides at the Peterson Automobile Museum in LA. Oh, okay. Road trip. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A second one is called the beauty mark and it's a candy velvet. I'm sorry. A candy violet colored 1979 Lincoln Continental Mark. I don't know if it's Mark V or Mark five, Mark five, I think. Thank you. With pinstriping and that car has graced the cover of Lowrider magazine. And then there's another one called El Chavez Ravine. And it's a 1953 Chevy ice cream truck commissioned by musician Rye Cooter. Mm-hmm. I've seen this picture too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To grace the cover of his 2005 album, Chavez Ravine, the custom paint right. job done by muralist Vincent Valdez tells the story of the destruction of the Mexican-American community that I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, and here's some lowrider fun facts. Lowrider culture isn't just big in the U.S. It's actually spread to Japan and Brazil and beyond. It makes sense that th- this seems like something with, that would be big in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Española, New Mexico, is considered by some to be the lowrider capital of the world, although I am sure East L.A. 
probably has a lot to <laughs> like, say about that. Yeah, exactly. They might argue the point, right? Right. Apparently, there's also a lot of like really iconic photography that was taken, and I did not write the photographer's name down, but that was taken by a photographer from the Española Lowriders. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like well-known images. Also, just a sidebar as well. It seems like the source of Española being named the lowrider capital of the world comes from an NPR article, but mm. even like within the article, it's not clear why that was. <laughs> they just. I mean, <laughs> I I grew up in Los Alamos, obviously, mm-hmm. which is about. I mean, I think it's less than twenty miles from Española. So mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time in Española, and I mean, Española is full of lowriders. Like, I mean, it full is. Of they love their lowriders. Mm-hmm. That, that was my first experience with lowrider culture was Española. So nice. Yeah. All of okay, so all of the alterations the paint jobs, the artwork, the interior changes, the suspensions, the new engines can cost like tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Um, Which is another thing that sort of like, you know, when you talk about this being like, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess maybe like, you know, people are in gangs could be like really successful. But the thing is, is that these are people who are putting a lot of time and energy into this cars pass down family lines, like Mm -hmm. the gypsy Rose did. It's not like if you put that much time and money and energy into a car, you're not going to like put a for sale sign in it and stick it in the the parking lot of the local circle K it's going to be stuff that goes that like, you know, is passed down. Right. So in the end, lowriders aren't a symbol or display of toxic masculinity. They are, in fact, a symbol and a sense of pride of a culture that refuses to be erased, forgotten, or ignored. And that is the story of the lowrider. Well, and that's interesting because, like, having grown up in Los Alamos, like I said, been so close to Española, uh, Mm -hmm. and Los Alamos culturally very different from Española. Like, Los Alamos mm-hmm. is like, I believe this is true. It's majority white. It's very, mm-hmm. I mean, it's well beyond, educated, like higher education. Well educated. You know, everyone's a fucking scientist. It's, um, you know, most people aren't from, like, I'm going to get to this when I talk about my story. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm like one of the only, I guess you would say, third generation. Los Mm -hmm. Alamos people I know because my grandfather moved to Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project. But most people like, you know, their parents move there from out of town because they get a job at the lab. So it's just not plugged into that northern New Mexico culture, even though it's part of northern New Mexico. Right. I will say like growing up up there, the idea of the lowrider being associated with gangs Mm -hmm. was absolutely. I mean, that's what I was taught for the yeah. longest time. I remember being in high school and we would drive down to Espanola sometimes for lunch. Like if we had a long lunch break and you'd see lowriders driving around and we were always afraid that it was gang members. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, like it might have been, but it also might have been, been, been like <laughs> it might have been like a fucking lo- a mechanic. It could have been right. a local teacher. It could have been any one of those things. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, it's like it's it's the idea that anytime you see someone who looks like a biker, you think it's a hell's angel when it's probably like you know just some local bike club. You yeah, know? some like suburban dad or mom or something. Yeah, on their Harley. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right, so I'm I'm gonna tell a very different story. <laughs> like. <laughs> This is one of our not particularly linked thematically episodes, although unless you want to say like New Mexico, I was going to say this is kind of like like interesting things about northern New Mexico. (laughs) Um, And in our last like full episode before we had Canon and did our uh, odds and ends episode, I told a very kind of happy, hopeful science story. I I talked about the golden record, the Voyager golden record. Um, But just to be on brand with who I am now, I'm going to tell like a really awful (laughs) Um, science story. Yay! So, this is the story <laughs> of the Demon Core. 
Cool. And this is very much a part of Los Alamos history. All right. Okay, so quick little content warning for you guys. I am going to get into some descriptions of, I'm going to try not to get into like the gory details, but I'm going to get into some descriptions of what happens with radiation poisoning. Mm, Okay. So my sources are Wikipedia, of course, Mm -hmm. um, and then an article from sciencealert.com. It's from April of this year, so it's a brand new article. Oh, wow. By a guy named Peter Dockrill, uh, and it's The Chilling Story of the Demon Corps and the Scientists Who Became Its Victims. Ooh, great okay. title. So let me start with just a little bit about the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone has heard the term Manhattan Project. What it was, was it was a research and development project during World War II to develop the first nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. This followed the discovery of the neutron by a physicist named James Chadwick in 1932, and then the discovery of nuclear fission by a couple chemists, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann in 1938. Mm-hmm. So the neutron, what is a neutron? It's a subatomic particle with a neutral, not positive or negative charge and a mass slightly higher than a proton. Protons and neutrons are okay. what form the nuclei of an atom. And that's about as much okay. into the science of that as I'm going to get because I said, now I was like lots of numbers and terms and fucking positive charge atomic numbers. And yeah, uh, I was like, nope. But what's important to know about neutrons is that free neutrons cause what's called ionizing radiation. Okay. So this essentially consists of subatomic particles or electromagnetic waves with enough energy to ionize atoms or molecules by like literally tearing the electrons off of them. When you ionize a molecule, you pull the electron off and then you give it a charge. And so this is where all the energy Okay. So high intensities of ionizing radiation actually can produce visible light. Like you can actually see it and it will damage exposed living tissue. So this leads to radiation burns, radiation sickness, and at lower levels causes cancer. Mm, And just, just all sorts of bad shit in your body yeah okay nuclear fission jesus yeah (laughs) again i'm not going to get into all of the science but just just a basic idea of what nuclear fission is it's the process by which the nucleus of an atom splits into two or smaller lighter nuclei okay so the act of fission what it does is you're this is when we talk about splitting the atom you're pulling the nucleus apart and it releases an extremely large amount of energy when you do Mm. that Okay. Now this fission event produces neutrons and then each of these neutrons will then cause further fissions. And this is a cascade that is known as the nuclear chain reaction. Okay. And then these chain reactions are what lead to the power that are generated by like a nuclear reactor. Okay. But it's also what creates the force in an atomic bomb. Okay. Now this is, this is a little bit of a tricky thing because I think like it's easy to be like, damn these scientists for doing this. Mm. Like I growing up in Los Alamos, there were, I remember anti-nuke protesters would come up. I covered them for the local paper. Mm-hmm. I watched Martin Sheen get arrested <laughs> because he like trespassed <laughs> on the, yeah. <laughs> don't you have a funny story about Martin Sheen? Well, arrested? I mean, he was, it was just like, wow, this is, this is how like you're, you won Oscars or whatever, actually right. for, for an Oscar, but because like, you know, it was a march to the lab and then they were going to like 
cross over the lat and you know all get arrested by right and of course martin sheen is like leading the charge uh-huh. everyone's walks across the bridge over to the lab and then you have like the lab director i think it was like the security director at the lab standing there and he had this like piece of paper and he was like um guys if you step over this line you're now on lab property and we're gonna have to arrest you for protesting and so martin sheen steps over the line and then they like go in to put the little like plastic cuffs on him and he drops to his knees and he starts doing the lord's prayer like as i walk through the valley of the god bless martin sheen god bless like, him man you're such a good fucking actor <laughs> and i and i say that with like no irony by the way because he is actually my favorite actor he's <laughs> um, fantastic and the, and the man has been arrested like 75 times yeah. for pro yeah. for protesting right uh like he's like if people are protesting i'm there yeah <laughs> and it's usually anti-nuclear stuff that's that's kind of his thing god bless and, him while I appreciate that, the thing I think people need to keep in mind when we're talking about the Manhattan Project, and this is not talking about whether we should or should not have dropped the bombs. We can talk about that in a little bit, but mm-hmm. like whether this should have even been done. The thing is, once the information about neutrons and nuclear fission was out there, you had three major world powers all mm-hmm. vying for control, one of which was us and the allied sort of Western powers, mm-hmm. one of which was Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and one of which was the Soviet Union. And so, like, we kind of had to, like, be the first to build the bomb, to be Um, honest, because you don't want, like, the Nazis would have been way less squeamish about using that bomb than we would have. Yeah. There's an excellent play uh, called Copenhagen. Yes. And it is, it's a three-person play, and it's, what was the dude, the dude from uh, Breaking Bad? Uh, What was his, like, his baddie name? Heisenberg? Yes. Yeah. So it's him, and then I think Niels Bohr I think it's Niels Bohr. Yeah. yeah, and it sort of takes place in this kind of like purgatory place, but they're they're basically having this conversation of yeah. like, you know, what did we do? And right, and they're arguing like sort of that thing. Like if it wasn't us, it, it was going been, to have yeah. been it was going to have been somebody else, and it would have been way worse. Right, and if the Nazis, I am one hundred percent convinced that if the Nazis had gotten the bomb, London would not exist. Mm-hmm. Like they, I don't know if they would have gotten to where they could have bombed us, but they would have leveled London. Yeah. Without a second thought. Like, yeah. And then the Soviets, you know, they were not as irrational. Like there was something insane and irrational about Nazi Germany. And at some point mm-hmm. I want to do an episode where I actually really get into the history of Nazism. The Soviet mm-hmm. Union was not as irrational. Like they, they were a little more, a little more of a rational world actor, but they mm-hmm. were still all about world domination. Mm-hmm. Like this was actually true. And this was like Soviets under Stalin. You know? Right. Not a good dude. Right. <laughs> so like you don't want either of these people to be the first to get the bomb. And the fact is someone was going to build the bomb. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of historical context about the why, why we were doing it. Now, the Manhattan Project itself, it was led by the United States, but with the support of both the United Kingdom and Canada. Mm, okay. It primarily took place from 1942 to 1946 under the direction of Major General Leslie Groves of the Army Corps of Engineers. Mm-hmm. Started as a pretty small scale operation in 1939, more just kind of a research operation. But this is, of course, as World War II is really heating up. Yeah. So it grew very rapidly. It ultimately cost about $2 billion, which I think I saw somewhere was like, it's the equivalent of about $26 billion today. Wow. And it employed more than 130,000 people. Wow. Um, not all in Los Alamos. Los Alamos was kind of the main t- site, mm-hmm. what was called Project Y or Site Y. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Manhattan Project, there was also Hanford, Washington, and then Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So Hanford was where they made the materials. They had mm-hmm. a reactor up in Hanford that they would take their uranium, do their science magic at it, and then you end up with plutonium, which is what you put in a bomb. Jesus. And then Oak Ridge was where they would actually do a lot of the assembly and manufacture of like the parts. So these Um, three sites were the primary locations of the Manhattan Project. Okay. There's a great book called The Girls of Atomic City Mm -hmm. that talks about what was going on in, in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not read it, but I've heard of it. I started reading it. Like I started reading it, I think, when the show Manhattan came out, which we have one very, very dear friend and then a couple of other friends that worked on that show. Mm-hmm. So if you can find it, check it out. I think yeah, it it's, had, it's, what, two seasons? I think they had two seasons. It is wildly historically inaccurate, but it's right. a super fun show. <laughs> but it's all about it's all about the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. It was yeah. very, what was it on? It was on it was on WGN. WGN, that's right. Yeah. It was, it was a good show. It was a good Unfortunately, it didn't get a lot of viewers, but it was a good show. Um, This was on WGN. Yeah. I mean, that's when like WGN was really trying to get into like peak TV game. Mm -hmm. Okay. So two types of bombs were developed. The first was what was called the gun type fission weapon. Basically, and again, I'm not going to get into all the science because I don't understand it, but basically it's like a long tube and you shoot a uranium or plutonium thing at another thing. This creates the compression, which creates the fission. Boom. You got the big explosion. Okay. This was what ended up, they tried a bomb called the Thin Man, which didn't work. They could never mm-hmm. get it to work. Mm-hmm. So then they monkeyed around with it a little bit. And this ended up becoming the basis for the Little Boy bomb, which was what was right. that ended over Hiroshima. Right, right, right. The second design was the more complicated implosion design, where basically okay. you have a plutonium core in the middle of the bomb with a bunch of explosives around it. You detonate the explosives, which compresses the core, creates the chain reaction. Big boom. This okay. was what ended up becoming the Fat Man bomb that detonated over Nagasaki. Okay. So the Los Alamos Laboratory, or like I said, Site Y or Project Y, was directed by physicist Robert Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. He chose the site for a couple of reasons. One is they needed a very remote site that no one really knew anything about mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was super secret. I mean, mm-hmm. like you weren't even allowed to like refer to it. My grandfather was one of the first nine civilians who wasn't a scientist or technician Mm -hmm. to move to Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project. He worked in like the motor pool or something. Yeah, I was going to ask what he did. Yeah, he was like basically a mechanic. You know, they had a bunch of civilian scientists and technicians and stuff. And then they had a bunch of army people. And then they had Mm -hmm. like my grandpa and nine other guys. (laughs) Just like. Who were just like. Hey. Floors and fixing the cars and stuff. What's up? But my grandfather said like when he, you know, he'd been working all around New Mexico. He was in Gallup at the time. And he heard about this job somewhere in Northern New Mexico, but they couldn't tell him anything about it until he actually signed up for the job, went through all the background checks. And then they're like, okay, here's where it is. Go, you know, go up to Santa Fe and hook a left kind of thing. So it was super, super duper secret. So that was one of the reasons Oppenheimer chose it. He also chose the site because he had actually, he'd gotten sick, I think, right after college. He'd gone to Uh Harvard. Uh-huh. So for his health, they were like, go out to New Mexico. And I, he actually ended up in the area. You know, he was riding horses and kind of fell in love with New Mexico mm-hmm. and became aware of what was called the Los Alamos Ranch School at the time. Okay. So basically it was like an old boarding school up on top of this mesa. There was like, it was like an outdoorsy, you send your kids and they're going to learn stuff. And then okay. they're also going to like, you know, be out in the wild and riding horses and all this stuff. Okay. Um, some of the alumni, it was a very exclusive ranch school. 
So some of the alumni of this ranch school include people like William S. Burroughs, the uh, the beat poet, writer, wow. drug addict, mm-hmm. um, and also <laughs> uh, the author Gore Vidal. What's wow. cool is that the Los Alamos Ranch School, it doesn't exist anymore, but the buildings are still there. So like in Los Alamos, we have what's called Bathtub Row, which was mm-hmm. where all the school administrators lived. And this became where like all the, the top scientists at Los Alamos wanted to move into the houses on Bathtub Row because they were the only houses that had working bathtubs. Okay, I was going to ask. I was like, yeah. what's that about? Wow. <laughs> so all the bathtubs, it's just this little, almost like little cul-de-sac. Can you drive, like, can you go up there? Yeah, yeah. A couple of the homes are still occupied because they were private residences uh-huh. for a long time. But the Los Alamos Historical Society is slowly kind of collecting them. Oh, that's good. It's becoming okay. part of the historical museum. My mom was volunteering at the historical museum for a while, so she knows all about that process. Wow. Okay, cool. But then there's also a big hall there called Fuller Lodge. It's like, it looks like a big log cabin kind of. Mm-hmm. And that's where everyone, like, they go and have their weddings and hold events there and stuff. Um, So the buildings are still there, but the ranch school is long gone because when Oppenheimer was like, hey, this is where we should go, the government kind of came in and just yoinked everything. I mean, I think they bought up the land and Mm -hmm. bought the ranch school kicked everyone out, threw up some fences, put up some armed guards, and here you have Site Y. (laughs) Okay, so the first nuclear device, it was nicknamed, quote, the gadget by the scientists who were working on the project. And it was detonated at 529 a.m. on July 16th, 1945. And this is what, of course, is known as the Trinity Site, which is now, Mm. it's in southern New Mexico. It's down at White Sands Missile Range. It was the implosion type design that they used for Fat Man. Okay. So it exploded with the equivalent of 22 kilotons of TNT. Wow. The shockwave was felt over 100 miles away. Wow. And the mushroom cloud reached 12 kilometers. One thing to keep in mind is that, like, this is the first generation nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. Like, this was a small nuclear explosion. (laughs) Wow. If you look at another probably episode I'm going to do at some point is the Tsar Bomba from the Soviet Union. It was the largest nuclear device. It was an H-bomb ever detonated. It was, I think, 100 times more powerful than this bomb. Okay, question. Yeah. So they build this bomb, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, we want to test it out and see what happens. Did they like put it into a plane and then drop it? Or were they like, did they drive it out there and somebody was like, you know, like with the switch lit the like, fuse like <laughs> and ran like hell <laughs> like a bugs buddy episode yeah no they actually i'm not sure how they got it there i think they probably drove it although i'm not sure about that okay. but there was like a big tower um okay. that they built like a big scaffold and they put the gadget up on top of this t- i think it was like a 300 foot tower what the fuck can you imagine being the dude that's like hey we're gonna need you to take this bomb up under the, yeah. the tower real <laughs> carefully just hoist this yeah, yeah. and it's um, like it's some you know some oh god some chump right. who's like <laughs> okay but it was and then it was of course remotely detonated okay now what's interesting is like they really didn't know it was gonna happen and there was a big, like, genuine concern of, like, well, I mean, we might just light the Earth's atmosphere on fire. What the fuck? So, like, oh, my God. Fingers crossed, dudes. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> now, they actually predicted that this bomb, the gadget, mm-hmm. would release about five to ten kilotons. So it essentially doubled their predictions, which is just, like, interesting because it shows, like, they really didn't know. Like, this was all... <sighs> fucking new (laughs) i i like i can't i can't figure out if that is if it's incredibly ballsy or dumb or both you know what i mean it's both and well and i'm going to talk about that moment i'm going to get to the demon core because i think a lot of this is like incredibly ballsy show-offy and just like the hubris right of like 
yeah, it'll be fine, you know. Jesus. Hopefully we won't catch the Earth's atmosphere on fire. Yeah, like, I mean, I hope. I, th- I think it'll work. I think Jesus. we won't incinerate the entire life cycle of Earth. Right. And if we do, at least we've still gotten the Nazis. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so this was the Trinity test. Now, the, the original target for these bombs actually would have been Germany. Mm-hmm. But by the time we had finished the bomb, Germany had already surrendered. Germany surrendered on May 9th of 1945. The Trinity test was on July 16th. But Japan was refusing to surrender. Right. And so the decision was made to instead drop the bombs over Japan. Okay. So this is something I have like deeply mixed feelings about the decision okay. to actually drop the bombs on Japan. Yeah. Because I have, you know, growing up in Los Alamos, I've heard all of the reasons why we quote had to do it. Mm-hmm. A big reason was because Japan wasn't surrendering. And there was this idea that the Japanese people were going to fight to the last man. Mm-hmm. And so like our other option would have been to invade Japan, which could have led to a million deaths on each side. Right. Of just like intransigent warfare. You yeah. Know? That said, <laughs> we bombed two major cities. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who died were not military combatants. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I've heard that, I don't know if this has ever been confirmed, but I think a big part of why we decided to drop the bomb, it wasn't just in the war. So we kind of wanted to show the Soviets who were technically our allies. It was our way of saying like, hey, don't fuck with us. Mm-hmm. This kind of backfired because all this did is just make the Soviets just like ramp up their own nuclear capabilities and there you go voila we have the arms race right right? and it was it was hiroshima and nagasaki okay so the first bomb was dropped on hiroshima it was dropped on august 6 1945 so just a few weeks after the trinity test the bomb called little boy uh this was the gun type bomb it killed 70 to 80,000 people in the initial blast they think this was about 30 percent of the entire population of the city and then an additional 20,000 like Japanese military people were killed. Mm. I could not find any like real definitive answer on how many people died after the facts due to injuries, radiation poisonings, etc. But I've seen casualty estimates from Hiroshima in like the hundreds of thousands or at least like yeah. 140,000 or something. Yeah. Now, among those killed were 90% of the doctors and 93% of the nurses because they were all downtown in the hospitals and that was Mm. ground zero. So you ended up with 70,000 people injured from the bombs with nobody to treat their injuries. Yeah. Japan still refused to surrender. So three days later, Nagasaki was bombed on August 9th. Mm. Now this bomb, this was Fat Man. This was actually the more powerful bomb, but because of the geography of Nagasaki, it actually had less, it did less damage and had somewhat fewer casualties. Estimates for the dead range from around 22,000 people to up to 75,000 people with an additional 60,000 people injured. Okay. At this point, Japan officially surrendered on August 15th, 1945, and this brought an end to World War II. Mm -hmm. So did they just wrap up the Manhattan Project and say, that was good job, fellas. (laughs) Good good job, team. Good job, team. No, they kept experimenting because they knew that like Soviet Union was next. They were were working on their bombs. So Los Alamos, this was still a secret city. A lot of the scientists who actually had wanted to leave after Mm -hmm. the end of the war were sort of impressed in the service. Like, no, we we need you to keep working. Um, I have a question real fast about Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff's happening here. It's not far, not too far from Albuquerque, very close to like Santa Fe and Espanola. Mm -hmm. 
did the surrounding communities know that something was going on I think or was it just like people knew something was up and no one had any idea what they knew the military was up there doing something because okay. if you drove up that road which i think at the time was like a dirt road uh-huh. um you would get to like the bottom of the mesa because the geography of los alamos just so people understand what i'm talking about they call it the hill like mm-hmm. if you're from los alamos and it's on top of a mesa that is like the way i describe it is it's like a hand with all the mm-hmm. fingers coming okay. out into these plateaus and then the top of the hand like going into the risk would be the mountain range which is the Hamas mountains okay so if you got to the bottom of the hill and it's bisected by all these canyons okay there would be armed guards and soldiers who would be like turn it around i'm assuming there were probably like no fly rules and there are still no fly rules over Los Alamos. really yeah i mean they have an airport but apparently you can only come in at one angle because they don't want you like circling around the town taking pictures of stuff yeah and then when they when they did the trinity test right that's what that's what it's called Mm -hmm. were they just like like (laughs) like i mean if if people felt a hundred miles away i'm not sure like i don't know what their cover stories were i mean honestly i think by the time they did trinity they were kind of not concerned about keeping it secret because they had a working bomb and they were going to use it like a week later or something Right. So, or like a few okay. weeks later. So at this right, point, right, right. it's like, I think secrecy was a little bit less of okay. a concern. Okay. But I've heard, I don't know if this is true. I've heard that people could see the flash from Albuquerque, which was like a wow. hundred plus miles away. Yeah. And is that why, because we've got the spy house here, which has to do with the Rosenbergs, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And is that why that dude was here selling the secrets? Does it have to do with that? I believe so. I don't know okay. that that I'd like to look more into the history of the Rosenbergs. I think there's another Alger Hiss. Yeah. Um. There, there are a few spies that came out of Los Alamos. Okay. Um, okay. They were pretty famous. Okay. And I mean, the, what I know about the Rosenbergs is that it's not entirely clear how guilty they actually were, but I don't want to say too much about it because I'm I don't I haven't read about it in a long time. Okay. So Japan surrenders. The war is over. Still doing research. This takes us to the Demon Corps. Oh, okay. So <laughs> since there was no guarantee that Japan would surrender, even after the first two bombings, there were plans to just keep bombing Japan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they had made the plutonium core that they used for the gadget for the Trinity test. And then they made three other cores. They ended up using two of them in the bombs. So they had this leftover core. It was, yeah, they they were like, well, we got to do something with this core. So let's just keep doing experiments on it. That just, that sounds like such a, but I mean, what else are you going to do? Like detonate it over the ocean? Like Jesus. Yeah. No, well, they were trying to improve their bomb design. So they needed to keep doing criticality tests and stuff. So they had this core that was codenamed Rufus. Okay. It was actually ready on August 16th to be shipped to be assembled into a bomb to bomb like i'm not sure if they were planning to bomb tokyo or what cities i couldn't find Mm. what cities were on the list okay but japan surrendered on the 15th so all the plans to ship the core out were just suspended Okay. And they ended up using it as part of what was called Operation Crossroads. So Operation Crossroads were a couple nuclear tests that were conducted in July of 1946 at the Bikini Atoll, which is a coral reef in the Marshall Islands. The idea was they wanted to see what a nuclear bomb would do to a fleet of ships. So they brought a fleet of 95 target ships, assembled them in the lagoon. Like if you look at a picture of Bikini Atoll, it's just this reef that kind of wraps around into this lagoon. It's like almost... Mm -hmm. It's almost like circular shaped with like okay. an inlet into this r- lagoon. So they they brought these 95 ships into the lagoon.
Dragoon, and then they tried to hit it from a couple different directions with bombs. So the first test, it was called the Able Test. It was conducted on July 1st, 1946. They detonated the bomb. I think they dropped it 520 feet above the fleet, but it missed its aim point. And so it d- didn't really do any damage. So they were like, okay. whoops. So then they did a, yeah. <laughs> then they did a second test. This was the Baker test. It was detonated 90 feet underwater of, mm. of the ships. This was okay. on July 25th, 1946. So like kind of three weeks later. What happened was this underwater test caused way more extensive contamination than they <gasps> expected. So they ended up canceling a third test, which was going to be called the Charlie test. Okay. Um, the fleet of ships was so contaminated by radiation that they were only able to like scrap, like salvage nine of them. The rest just had to be scuttled, like sunk to the back bottom of the ocean. Cause like you couldn't even like get close to them. They're just kicking off radiation like crazy. Okay. But now that radiation is in the water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Just, no, we just wanted to make sure the whole, the whole uh, history. I don't, I don't get into it, but the whole history of bikini atoll is kind of like we said about the Texas Rangers, like not great, like displaced a bunch of people who live there. It's, it's not right. a great story. Um, okay. And just it's now it's an irradiated wasteland. So this third core that had initially been planned to be part of a third bombing attack and then was going to be part of the third Charlie test is what became known as the Demon Corps. Okay. Because it was involved with two different criticality accidents during testing that caused the death of two different scientists. Okay. So a little bit about the Demon Corps itself. So the way the core was designed, it was basically, it's like a, it was a 6.2 kilogram core, which I think was about 14 pounds sphere of plutonium. I think it was like plutonium and another material called gallium, which I don't, I don't know. I didn't write down okay. what that is. The way it was designed, there was like an extremely small safety margin. And they did this on purpose because they wanted it to be more reactive. But this made their risk of going what's called super critical or prompt critical much more likely. Okay. So the way they were testing these cores, basically the way these plutonium cores work is they're just kicking off neutrons. Neutrons are just flying out of this thing. Okay. To push it into criticality, what you have to do is put these reflectors around it and bounce the neutrons back into the core. This is where it'll start that fission chain reaction. Okay. And what they were trying to do with these experiments was find the exact margin right before where you're bouncing neutrons back into this core right before it goes critical. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the so the first accident happened on August 21st, 1945. This was just like a week after Japan surrendered. Mm-hmm. A young physicist named Harry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Doglian. It's okay. D-A-G-H-L-I-A-N. He was conducting an experiment okay. on the core. Basically what he was doing is he was, he had the core, he was setting these tungsten carbide bricks around it. Mm-hmm. The tungsten carbide would reflect the neutrons back into the core. Mm-hmm. He's stacking these bricks up till there's just a little opening at the top. And he had one more brick that he was going to put on top, but he's watching what's called a, I think a scintillation monitor, mm-hmm. basically like, or a neutron detector. It's basically seeing like what the neutrons are doing. Mm-hmm. He realized he's got the brick. He's like holding it over this like little thing on the top. He's mm-hmm. about to put the brick down and the neutron monitor is telling him, Oh, if you put that brick there, it's going to go super critical. <laughs> okay so i just he, i just need to explain for everybody who can't see yeah. what's happening right now is that i'm like covering my eyes as if i can stop seeing what right. scotty it's like it's like she's <laughs> watching a horror movie it's great <laughs> <laughs> as if by covering my eyes scotty will stop talking 
and I will not stop talking. <laughs> okay. So, oh God. Okay. So he realizes that this thing, this core is about to go super critical. This doesn't mean it's going to explode, but what it's going to do is just start this chain reaction and kick off like a ton of radiation. So he's like, don't want to do that. Starts okay. to take the brick away. The brick slips out of his grip on top of the core, seals it, and he gets dosed. He tries to like push the brick away, Mm. but the problem was these bricks are like 10 pounds. So he's like knocking at it and it's like not going where. So he actually had to disassemble this, this construction he had built around the core, Mm -hmm. meaning he's standing there getting dosed by radiation. (sighs) Okay. Yikes. So the core went prompt critical. He ended up receiving, they think about 510 REM. And I was saying like REM numbers, Rontgen numbers, RADs. Like, I don't know the fucking difference. Okay. Um, it was a lot of radiation. From what I read, like. <laughs> Look, all you need to know is that it's a buttload of it's radiation. It's a buttload of radiation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From what I read, doses of more than 100 REM will cause acute radiation syndrome and possibly lead to death. He was five times above that threshold. Okay, so this is where the trigger warning comes in. This is where we're going to talk a little bit about what happens with radiation sickness. Mm-hmm. So the first okay. thing that happens... Hold, hold, hold up. Okay, Swallow the I'm ready. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> All right, so the first thing that happens is that it, is it destroys the blood cells in your body, specifically white blood cells. Mm. This leads to extreme anemia, and it also basically destroys destroys your immune system Mm -hmm. system so now you're just wide open for infection Mm-hmm. It also makes burn wounds less likely to heal. So think about what mm-hmm. happens after a bomb is dropped on a city. Mm-hmm. The people, the people who are at ground zero, they're the lucky ones. Because right. now just... Amelia's like shaking her fists, <laughs> like yeah. Um, because they're just they're gone. It's the yeah. people on the outskirt that get the fallout because they might get burns and the burns aren't gonna heal because they've also been dosed with radiation. Oh my God. With usually within an hour, you start, you get extreme nausea and start vomiting. Okay. This then leads to extreme abdominal pain is essentially your just gastrointestinal system starts to kind of melt. Dizziness, headaches, the materials in your brain start to just tear themselves apart, which leads Mm. to like decreased consciousness and mental function. Mm -hmm. This is where it gets real gross, like Mm. extreme blistering all over your body. Your skin just starts opening up. Mm. hair loss damage to like all of your glands your sweat glands etc you don't want it it's not good. yeah it's not good stuff lower doses of radiation will cause cancer over time mm-hmm. i believe and so mm-hmm. they've looked at like you know post chernobyl you know right. the the spikes in like thyroid cancers in the communities around and stuff right but these acute doses like when you get 510 rem of radiation and you're standing right next to the thing for a sustained like several minutes as you're disassembling the thing you're you're probably not surviving yeah so doglian fell into a coma and he died 25 days after the accident oh. um, with his his mother and sister were beside him as he died oh. they returned his body to new london connecticut for burial mm-hmm. he was 24 years old oh yeah he God. was a graduate he was a graduate student so Question, Mm -hmm. when you've been dosed with that kind of radiation, you then become radioactive, right? Like, so was it dangerous for his mom and his sister to be around him? I tried to look and I don't think so. Okay. Now, I think if you ingest something that's radio, like there's kinds of radiation poisonings where if you ingest something, the thing that caused the poisoning is still inside you. 
and it can be emitting radiation. Like the Soviets were always like poisoning people with stuff that made them radioactive. Right. Um, Well, and I know the (laughs) good job. Hot take. The Soviets were assholes. (laughs) Well, and I know that I know like the radium girls. Now that I'm thinking about this, I'm like, I've done like a shit ton of plays about stuff having to do with this stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, I know that the radium girls, I know that like their bodies buried in coffins to this day continue to glow in the dark. I think it's because they were radium poisoning that they they were were ingesting the radium. Yeah. I think if you're just standing near it and you just get the effects of it, but it doesn't actually infuse the radiation into your body. Okay. Any nuclear physicists who are fans. (laughs) Yeah. Help us out. Help us out here. Let us know. Cause we really, I, I, I need to know. Yeah. No, I don't believe like his body was dangerous. Okay. But the core was because it had gone super critical. You got to let it all like disperse and cool down. Okay. Also exposed was just a 29-year-old army private, a guy named Robert J. Hammerley. He was just in the room. But he did not get nearly the dosage. Okay. He did die 33 years later of leukemia, Mm. which leukemia, cancers, these these are major uh, side effects of like long-term effects of radiation exposure. So There's no way to know for sure, but it seems likely that this exposure might have led to his illness and death 33 Mm. years later. Okay, the much more famous second accident. Okay. Less than a year later, on May 21st, 1946, a physicist by the name of Louis Sloten was conducting another experiment on this very same core that they had codenamed Rufus. So a little bit about Louis Sloten. He was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba. His family was Jewish. He was an academic prodigy, and he started college when he was 16 years old. He earned a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science degree from the University of Manitoba, and then later attended King's College in London, where he got his doctorate. Which he received in 1936. He then became a research associate at the University of Chicago. And if anyone, I didn't go into it, but like the University of Chicago deeply had its hands in the Manhattan Project. So through this association with the University of Chicago, he was then invited in 1942 to join Site Y and participate in the Manhattan Project. Okay. Sloten became known as the guy to put the bomb together. He actually became, they called him the armorer of the United States. Because he was the guy you trusted to actually assemble the thing. Mm-hmm. A couple interesting things about Sloan. This goes to what we were talking about with the idea of hubris. He was a very smart guy. Extremely capable scientist. But from reading about him, he was also kind of a show-off. Mm. He kind of thought of himself as like a bit of a cowboy. Like even was like walking around wearing cowboy boots and stuff. I mean, um, just, I mean, why? When you're dealing with this kind of stuff. Right. Well, I feel like a healthy dose of fear is just necessary. Didn't seem like he, he didn't respect, he didn't respect the core. <laughs> yep. Because less than a year after it killed this Harry Dogland, he was conducting another experiment. And there were many more okay. people in the room with him. Sloten had grown kind of disenchanted with the Manhattan Project. He'd been trying to get out of it. They wouldn't let him go. He has a quote, and I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, well, they won't let me go because I'm like one of the only bomb putter togethers that they have. Okay. He was training another guy, a guy named Alvin Graves, in how to do these criticality tests mm-hmm. because Alvin Graves was supposed to take over for him because Sloten was finally being uh, allowed to leave. He was going to go back to the University of Chicago and start teaching. Okay. He wanted to teach like biochemistry and stuff like that. So he was showing this experiment to Alvin Graves. There were several other people in the room. There's a guy named Raymer E. Schreiber, who was okay. uh, known to his friends as Schreib. Okay. Also a physicist. A guy named Alan Klein, Marion Edward 
Sizliak, Dwight Smith Young, Theodore P. Perlman, and an army private named Patrick Cleary were all in the room as he was doing this experiment. Okay. So he was doing the experiment differently than what Harry Dahlian did. Whereas Harry Dahlian built up these like tungsten bricks to kind of surround it. Mm-hmm. What Sloten was doing is he had the cores, the 6.2 grams or whatever, kind of 14 pound core mm-hmm. in one half of a beryllium tamper. It was a larger sphere that was cut okay. in half. So okay. he had the core sitting in the bottom half. Beryllium, like the tungsten carbide, would reflect the neutrons back into the core. So okay. again, you're trying to push it towards criticality. Okay. And then what you do, if you do the experiment right, the way you're supposed to do it, Mm-hmm. is you set little shims around the rim of this tamper. As you lower the upper tamper onto it, mm-hmm. these shims create a gap, which is letting just enough of the neutrons out to keep it from going prompt critical. So that's the way you're supposed to do this. Okay. The way Sloten was doing it was what they called tickling the dragon's tail. No, no, yeah. just no. <laughs> Yeah. And in fact, if anyone knows who Enrico Fermi is, he was a big famous scientist, one of the major scientists at the Manhattan Project. He had told Sloten less than a year before, he said, Mm -hmm. if you keep doing this experiment this way, you'll be dead in a year. And Sloten was like, whatever. Whatever. I got my cowboy boots on. You can't touch me. Exactly. So (laughs) rather than. Yeah. So rather than set these shims up to maintain the gap, he's just holding the tamper, the upper part of the sphere over it and maintaining the gap with a tiny little screwdriver. What? Yeah. I hate this. Yeah. And they're pushing this towards prompt critical. Alvin Graves is standing directly behind him. Everyone else is kind of spread throughout the room. Mm -hmm. The screwdriver slipped. No. The tamper shut. It went critical. So this was at 3.20 PM on May 21st. (sighs) The core went immediately super critical mm-hmm. uh, a flash of blue light filled the room so this was the blue <laughs> glow of air ionization which indicated a severe release of radiation uh Sloten said that he had immediately felt like the sour taste in his mouth Ooh. and a burning heat just like jumped up his hand went up his arm into his body so here's a quote from that Raymer schreiber he says the blue flash was clearly visible in the room although it the room was well illuminated from the windows and possibly the overhead lights. The total duration of the flash could not have been more than a few tenths of a second. Sloten reacted very quickly in flipping the tamper piece off. Basically, it snapped shut. He immediately knocked the tamper off. Mm-hmm. After my talking shit about Lewis Sloten being okay. kind of a reckless cowboy, okay. <laughs> he's given credit for, before he knocked the tamper off, he actually moved to block Alvin Graves' body. So he took on more radiation. He he was trying to protect Graves. Mm -hmm. Knocked the tamper off, stopped the criticality accident, probably within a second or two. He wasn't wearing a dosimetry badge. And this was, in fact, like a thing he was kind of known for. Like, apparently in 1945, he had been in Oak Ridge for some reason, and they had what was called the X-10 graphite reactor. Uh Something broke on it. And so he had to go fix something six feet underwater inside the graphite reactor. Uh-huh. Now, the way you're supposed to do this is you're supposed to shut the reactor down and let everything cool down, blah, 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 blah. He was just like, nah, got in it with the reactor going, fixed whatever he needed to fix, got out, not wearing a dosimetry badge, so no one knows how much radiation he took. They think he got a high but survivable dose of radiation. So this was just the year before. 
So again, no one's wearing dissymmetry badges. No one is. No one in the room is. And no one was like, can I get, can I get like a something? Yeah. Can I get one of those blankets or something that they put on me during the x-rays? No. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe so. (laughs) God. So, so the tamper snaps shut. He kind of blocks Graves' body, knocks the tamper off. And then his quote was what he said right after the tamper at the floor is like, well, that does it. So. Schreiber ran down the hall to get the dosimetry badges, which were in a lockbox 100 feet away. Okay. And he came back into the room and placed the badge next to the core to see what it was kicking off. And I think I read somewhere that it was like saying 500 of the the rim or whatever. Wow. This was like three minutes after the criticality incident. Mm -hmm. So they actually think that Sloten might have taken on something like 1,500 rim. Wow. Remember- 500 killed Harry Dogman. Right. But they don't know for sure. It was really like didn't tell them much to bring the dissymmetry badge in when they did because it Mm -hmm. was already after the event. So no one really knows how badly they were dosed. Mm -hmm. Young and Klein were also injured. They were hit with a fair amount of radiation, but they survived. Alvin Graves was given a 50% chance of survival. He's the one who was standing right behind Sloten and Sloten Mm -hmm. kind of blocked his body. Mm Mm-hmm. He suffered severe radiation poisoning, hair loss, and a sperm count of zero. What? Yeah. They thought he had about a 50% chance of surviving. He was in the hospital for two weeks and then spent several more weeks convalescing before he seemed to have fully recovered. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he and his wife had a son, their second son, two years later. So the sperm count came back up. He did die almost 20 years later of a heart attack at the age of 55. Okay. They think it's likely that the radiation exposure damaged his heart. Okay. And so it might have been a delayed reaction, Mm -hmm. but no one really knows because his father also died of a heart attack. And so it could have just been genetic. Right. Three of the observers died of conditions known to be exacerbated by radiation. Mm. Uh, So Graves had the heart attack. This Sisliak Mm -hmm. died of leukemia also 19 years later. Mm-hmm. And then Dwight Young of a plastic anemia and a bacterial infection 27 years later. Okay. Sloten didn't last that long. Uh, yeah, I imagine. So he apparently went right outside and began to vomit. Oof. And then he was, the, the way, the where this experiment was conducted was in an area what's called Pajarito Canyon. Mm-hmm. So like I said, if you look at Los Alamos, it's like a mesa with a bunch of fingers. And then there's these canyons in between the mesas. Mm-hmm. This was what was called the Omega site, I believe. It was also technical area 18, I think. Like the lab is divided into all these different technical areas. It was kind of down in the bottom of one of these canyons, Pajarito Canyon. So they had to send an ambulance down from Los Alamos to get him and bring him up. And by the time they got him up to the hospital in Los Alamos, he was just, he had, he was just constantly vomiting. They put him in the hospital. Many volunteers throughout the community sort of lined up to donate blood because they're trying to give him blood transfusions. Yeah. He seemed for a few days to actually maybe be recovering, but then he went downhill mm. uh, very shortly after. They ended up paying for his parents to fly down from Winnipeg to be with him because I think they knew he wasn't going to yeah. make it. So they arrived four days after the incident. Over the next several days, Sloten suffered a, quote, agonizing sequence of radiation-induced traumas, including severe diarrhea, swollen hands, mm. massive blisters on his hands and forearms, intestinal paralysis, Ooh. and gangrene. It's mm. basically been described as he had a three-dimensional sunburn, quote-unquote. He ended up slipping into a coma. And he died on May 30th, nine days after this accident. He was 35 years old. 
and he ended up being buried at the Sharay Zedek Cemetery in Winnipeg, which I believe is a Jewish cemetery. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Okay, so what happened to this core? So after this, they stopped calling it Rufus and they started uh-huh. calling it the Demon Core <laughs> because it had okay. killed two different scientists and two different criticality criticality right. accidents. But was the core cursed? Like mm-hmm. a lot of people like to say that. No. It's because they it was really like the one core I think they had to work with and they really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Like, and they weren't and particularly with Sloten, he was not being careful. Yeah. So this is human error across the board. The core had been planned, like I said, it was to be part of it was initially to be part of the Able test, which was that first test at Bikini Atoll. Mm-hmm. But after this accident, it was way too hot to be used. So they ended up scheduling it for the Charlie test, which was supposed to be the third test. Mm-hmm. But the Baker test, the underwater test, mm-hmm. like I said, it released way more radiation than expected. And they weren't able to actually decontaminate the site enough to do another test. So they ended up just canceling the Charlie test. The Demon Corps was then sent back to the Hanford site in Washington where it was melted down and then reused in other cores later. So that's what happened to the demon core. After the accident, the scientists at Los Alamos were like, no more of these hands-on experiments. So later what they would do at the same site, they would basically put the cores to do these criticality experiments in these like igloos and then remotely have remote operated things to do the assembly and do the tests. Okay. And they were doing these tests up at least until the 80s and 90s because my mother, and I found this out recently, mm-hmm. um, she actually worked at the site where this happened. The building, what they now call the Sloten building, is on the site where she worked. Um, and so when she was working at the lab there, they were still doing these criticality tests, but they were doing them with like essentially with robots. Mm. And that is the story of the Demon Corps. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, it's it's one of those stories I grew up with. Like anyone mm-hmm. in Los Alamos, you know about this. Yeah, I've um, never heard of this. Yeah, I didn't know all the details until recently during the research. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is fascinating to me is this idea that Sloten was just being kind of, of a cowboy and being kind of reckless because yeah. growing up in Los Alamos around scientists, I'm like, yeah, I know that guy. That tracks. Yeah. That tracks. <laughs> it's like the guy who just thinks he knows better. It's like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Sometimes it's not fine. Sometimes it's not fine. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so maybe just take the extra couple minutes to put the goddamn shims on the thing. Around the thing, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Cowboy text. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there you go. Wow. Oh, that was awful. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a fun one. I mean, it's wow. kind of fun for me, but it's, you know, hopefully you guys are interested. In I mean, it's fascinating. Too grossed out. <laughs> right. It's fascinating. Well, it, this is so funny because it's not that I'm like, Ugh, nasty. I don't want to hear this. It's just like, you know, we, Scotty and I earlier were on a, a friend's podcast. Hi, Alyssa. Uh, Hello. Hello. Um, and so we were talking about the brains. We were talking about our brains episode mm-hmm. and the mirror neurons and the mirror neurons and all that stuff. So that's the thing is that it's not that I'm like, oh, this is gnarly and I don't want to hear it. It's that I'm like, I can't like I, I can't. It's it's hard for me to separate from mm-hmm. just the fucking awfulness that, yeah. that both of them felt in the aftermath of that. 
Well, and like I'm looking at pictures to post for our social media this week. And mm-hmm. there's a couple I'm like, nope, not going to post that. Because there's like oh a picture God. of that Harry Doglian's hand before he oh, died. And it's uh-huh. just an enormous blister. Oh, uh, so, yeah, I think God I'll post. They, they have a couple pictures of just like recreations of the experiment. <laughs> right. Okay. So know that the social media will start with some very pretty color, like colored cars um, and then proceed at then, your own risk. Yeah. Proceed to the sphere of death. Right. <laughs> oh God. All right. Well, All way right. to come back from the break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just came in swinging. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Like we do. Well, thank you guys for listening, for sticking with us for the last month. Um, yeah. Thank you guys. We're happy to be back. Yay. We, we should be back next week. So we're going to mm-hmm. be back to the weekly schedule. And as always, uh, tell your friends, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Please, please, please. I keep, we keep saying this and nobody's doing it. Well, a couple of people have done it, but like get on iTunes or whatever and like leave us a review. We really want to hear from you guys. I think, I think that might be the thing is that like we have people who are doing wonderful reviews of us like on social media, which right. is amazing. And thank you so much. We, we appreciate We appreciate them so, so much. Um, If you want to take it a bit further, go on to whatever your podcasting app is. And if you can leave us a review on that, because that helps us get, I was going to say seen, but I mean, it is seen, seen and heard by more people. So we can keep sharing more weird, gross, fascinating tales with more of you. And that would be, that would be super cool. And until then, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.